Hi, everybody. Um, um, before I start, I just also wanted to thank Ross and thank uh, Dean and Eleanor and Suniva for facilitating this discussion. Um, obviously, we have a very full panel um, and a very exciting panel, so I will say very little. Um, just a few brief words um, to sort of frame the discussion today. Um, but obviously, I'm, I'll be the least interesting thing about this panel, so I'll try to move through it as quickly as I can. When we started thinking about this panel, we were thinking about the idea of, I think the discussion was framed around this idea of how we can continue to make cinema available as art, uh, and available to artists. Um, and um, I'll just quickly, uh, there are extended bios for um, everybody on the panel that you can get, so I'm not going to go through them in great detail. Um, but on the panel we have um, Jesse Jones, an artist who frequently works with the moving image, whose most recent work, Tremble Tremble, um, represent on the Venice Biennale and will open in the project in June. And mm -hmm. yeah. um, Joe Comfort, who is part of what has been referred to earlier as um, the first wave of Irish filmmakers who moved continuously and drew from um, this relationship between cinema and visual arts and continues to do as part of this practice. Um, and that kind of was a defining aspect of that for those first wave filmmakers and continues to be a, a defining aspect of Joe's practice. Um, Christine Malloy, and who's one half of Desperate Optimist, who's responsible for several um, features, and produces work that again constantly shifts between these two modes of film and the visual arts. Fanula Sweeney, who's head of film and international arts for the Arts Council, who again is um, constantly engaged with the relationship between art and film. And Anya Mahler, who is uh, both a visual artist working directly with the medium of film, and, and an archivist who worked with the IFI Arts Film Archive for several years. And again, this more detailed bios if you need them uh, um, So, um, you've also kind of heard a little bit about um, the organization Amy, that I represent. Um, and what we do often is um, look at, put together individually curated programs featuring this kind of work, uh, many of which have taken place at the IFI sometimes in the two. And Amy itself and the work we do comes out of an acknowledgement that this arena of artists and experimental moving image needs a particular set of attention and support the kind of infrastructure offered in other countries by organizations like Lux Moving Image, for example. And while we're not there yet, our aim at aim to, is that it would operate on two fronts. On the one hand, as a side of sort of public engagement for these practices, and the other side as a sort of resource organization, providing artists working within this field with advocacy, support, and guidance. And today, today I think we're inevitably going to be talking to some degree about categorization. And this is likely to become problematic because these kinds of categorization where they if we talk about experimental film or artist moving image, they often feel inadequate and are rarely fit for purpose. Um, we also have a sort of natural inclination to push against these categorizations that can seem exclusionary or narrow. And um, the name AIMI is an acronym that combines two different, two, or at least what are often treated as two distinct categories, uh, artist moving image and experimental film, um, that have in the past often been treated as two distinct trajectories. Uh, on the one hand, a tradition of the visual arts, and on the other hand, a tradition of either experiment or avant-garde practice. In some cases, these two modes of practice are rooted in thematic concerns or distinctions between different media. Um, we can think, for example, of the possibilities opened up for video, they'll open up by video for gallery exhibition in the 1970s, versus a more distinct trajectory within avant-garde practice that looked more to the medium of film. And in some cases, we, just, we tend to distinguish between these these practices, not because of their content, because of their exhibition site. 
And so that works to show MacGyver in the museum for his work to show maybe in the darkened auditorium of the cinema space. And if we look, out, if we look also at the uh, broader relationship between cinema and the whole and these other categories, um, experimental film, blah, 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 arts moving image, these practices are also often seen as discrete but parallel trajectories to cinema proper. And um, if we take, for example, we go a little back into further cinema history, and if you look at the more familiar forms of narrative cinema in the 1920s, and then the emergence of what became known as the European avant-garde, we see artists uh, like Man Ray or Hans Richter, artists who've made their reputation and had come up in a, in, a, in a visual art practice for the most part, in working in different media, looking to film as a sort of new form of expression, and you know, embracing things like abstraction, repetition, in a manner that would likely have felt alienating to viewers accustomed to a more recognizable narrative cinema. And I think the reason why we keep returning, or personally I keep returning to filmmakers like that and artists like that, is that they seem briefly in that period to sort of destabilize the trajectory of cinema history. Um, but it also worth mentioning that for the most part, artists and filmmakers have often expressed discomfort when, with them being dismissive of these categorizations. If they are useful at all, they are most useful to those of us trying to make sense of the work and to understand the context in which it operates. Through our own work as Amy, in which we regularly create experiences of work by artists and experimental filmmakers, but also in our experience of viewers of these works, we appreciate the importance of context, the how and where we encounter work, and what that work is surrounded by profoundly affects our experience of work and its reception. And it is perhaps worth mentioning also that, like most people who hear from this panel, Alison and I are not practitioners. Our interests began in the cinema, most typically through an encounter of works that makes differently think differently about what was possible in this context. And obviously, Alice and I operate within an Irish context, and we're consistently impressed with the quality of work being produced here. And over the past few years, we've shown work by many artists and filmmakers based here whose work will otherwise be unlikely to see, be seen in the cinema space. And while there are other ways to encounter those works, we find it useful and possible to present those works in a dedicated screening space and to also place those works through curated programs in conversation with other international works as well as specific historical images and trajectories. For, this, this, for us, this is both productive and constructive because they allow us to revisit seemingly stable trajectories. In our experience, these categories have rarely been stable, instead constantly intersecting and feeding off each other. But it's also often the case that most, the most productive and interesting aspects of history, of cinema history, are those that have been overlooked, forgotten, and neglected. And that to intervene in those histories through the programs that we put together and the work that we do uh, with Amy, we, we hopefully try to complicate the stability of those categorizations, but also those histories present an image of this that exists in a state of productive instability. Uh, our aim now with Amy is not to reaffirm distinctions, but to propose a means through which a more expansive understanding of cinema can be attained. And we want to propose discussions today because we're keen to hear ideas about how a more open dialogue can be created between visual arts and film. So some of what we've talked about today is I think cross-pollination and there's a precedent there for that. Um, for example, what the first wave filmmakers like Pat Murphy, Joe Covert, and Patrick Sullivan did but it's visible in the work of each of our panels. There's clearly a fluidity here, but we're interested in how we can continue to enrich that and build upon it. And through the various projects we've worked on, we feel strongly that the cinema and the cinema space can benefit from being continuously further opened up and explored as a context for art and artists to explore. And so I'll leave it at that, and I just want to thank again our panelists and you all for being here. Um. Daniel, and uh, yeah, I want to also reiterate those thanks to uh, all our panel and to you for being here. Uh, just to give you some sense of uh, the format uh, for our discussion, uh, we're really lucky to have a, a, a kind of 
big numbers on our panel today. So what we've decided to do is ask each person to speak for about five, or five minutes or so to begin. Um, and that should bring us up to about half 12, at which point we'll be able to sort of talk ourselves for about 10 or 15 minutes and then open up to you. And, and we'd really love to hear your thoughts and, and questions. So um, uh, hope to, to get you involved at that stage. Um, so, and I think Daniel's really sort of set the groundwork there for the discussion we hope to have today. Um, and I thought we'd start off with, uh, with Jesse, um, <laughs> just to, um, yeah, I guess to, 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 what we wanted to do was hear from each panelist about their experience and expertise mm -hmm. in relation to um, sort of artist moving image and the cinema space. And, and for you in particular, I know we were, we, we've talked about uh, what you might discuss today and, and wanted to really touch on how cinema informs your work as an artist, research, but how it actually plays a role in your exhibitions. And then, and then I suppose, kind of the moving image as a basis of, of the work you actually make. Um, yeah, so I, I thought we'd, we'd start with you. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, I suppose one of my... Uh, primary, um, one of the things you could define my relationship to cinema is from the perspective of oscillating doubt and um, I suppose my first relationship to cinema was coming to it as an audience member um, and uh, I think the first time I really thought that cinema or film might be something I would want to make was when I saw Bill Viola's work in the Douglas Hyde Gallery in in I think the late 90s, early 2000s, and it was it was that feeling of the body and the space that made me think differently than the way I'd felt when I had been sitting in a cinema, um, in this mode of kind of taking in or being being witness to something, and it was the 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 visual arts actually, and it was contemporary art that really positioned my I guess artistic and my desire to want to be part of that process of of making cinematic work. So from that I went on to study sculpture and NCD. I had been making film, but then a really intense thing happened um, where I went to a huge uh, political demonstration and there were thousands and thousands and thousands of cameras pointing in every single direction, early 2000s, like anti-capitalist movement. And then I ended up being in a film. And then I ended up looking at myself in a film and going, whoa, that's not me either. <laughs> so... I had I, this is the oscillating doubt is positioning oneself in relationship to to film um, I ended up making making films kind of by making a large sculpture in uh, about 2006 I was working on a public art commission called 12 Angry Films and showed Rocky Road and, and had an amazing um, time hanging out with Peter during that period and learned a lot from him as well about his relationship and his oscillating doubt um, with cinema and with the, the context of cinema in Ireland. Um, I began making films uh, in a very material way, just getting a kit out from film base, hustling together a couple of hundred quid to buy cans, um, driving out into the desert with three cans and spooling and making films. And that became, for me, a way to grapple with this kind of sense of body and materiality and I've been doing that to various different scales for the last 10 years. Um, I suppose most notably uh, last year I represented Ireland in the Venice Biennale with a, a film installation 
which incorporates a film that I made with Alwyn Fury and um, performance and enactment and um, what I'm kind of terming as, a, as, a, as an expanded cinematic space which involves bodies and, and responsibility to bodies and the time of, of, that we might be in the space together and what other expanded affects might happen from the cinematic. Um, that work will be on show in Project Art Centre on the 7th of June. So if people would like to come along and find out more about what expanded cinema is, um, yeah, I suppose that's five minutes. Great. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jesse. Um, yeah, so I think what we'll do is try and kind of return back to some of what you've discussed there. Um, but we thought we'd go over to Fanula um, sure. next just to talk about the Arts Council's sure. sort of relationship with artists moving as image as a term and, and the kind of film that the Arts Council supports. Yeah, and, um, yeah. I'm going to stand up. I talk better when I'm standing up. <laughs> um, okay. So I thought just in this context it would be useful at the outset to take a minute to outline the Arts Council's role in the film and then to talk um, about our support for film artists and our supports for film artists. Um, so, what I'm talking about here today, um, when I'm talking today, I'm talking from the point of view of film at the Arts Council and not visual arts. <clears throat> for an artist coming through the door of um, the Arts Council for support, you can go uh, a moving image artist, I should say. For a moving image artist coming through the door of the Arts Council, can go in one of two directions. If you're an artist um, who would describe yourself as a film artist um, and you are making work for cinema in the first instance, you come to film. If you're a moving image artist who would describe yourself as a visual artist or coming from a visual artist practice where film is your medium, you would go to visual arts. So I'm here only talking about film because you need the head of visual arts to come and um, as well to talk about the visual arts end of things. So in film, the Arts Council's role is to support film as an art form and it's central to the provision of what we would describe as a national infrastructure for film culture in Ireland. It's focused on the art of film and it supports film artists and provides for and develops public engagement with cultural cinema. So in this way, we serve both artists and the public. That's, that's our role. I describe our role as a discrete one that's distinct from but complementary to the role of the Irish Film Board, which works to develop the Irish film industry. It also complements the roles of RTE, TD Cahir, and the BAI in the area of television production, and it aligns with the Creative Ireland programme and its media pillar. <coughs> We've a new film strategy, or a new film policy in place which flows um, from our 10-year strategy, making great art work. Um, the policy's been in place for some time, but it's or, um, going to be published along with other art form policies in the next couple of weeks. Um, the film policy reaffirms and prioritises our commitment to film artists and to public engagement in the area of film. Um, so if we look at the artists, we support film artists in two ways. We provide direct supports and then indirect supports. So film artists can avail of direct supports through our award and film schemes, which are designed to provide artists 
with an opportunity to develop their practice that will be, for example, to our film bursary award. Um, to make work of an experimental or non-narrative nature or film project. Or to make artist-led, authored work for cinema exhibition that would be our real art scheme and a new initiative which we're announcing at the end of May for distinct artist-led, authored work. Fundamentally, um, I suppose, we're about providing a space for artists to make the work that they want to make, to give, to give them the creative freedom to do that outside of an editorial context or with a view to a marketplace. Um, we also work in partnership with others to provide enhanced opportunities for artists. So we're working with TG Cowan, BAI and Elbona, an arts documentary scheme for work in Irish, and we work with UCC on our film artist in residence. And we hope to develop more partnerships throughout the course um, of the next few years uh, to do work with others. So then we support artists indirectly as well, and that's through, um, as I referred to, our support for the National Infrastructure for Film Culture. And so that's supporting the organisation um, that we're all in here now. Um, the Irish Film Institute, other film resource organisations and film festivals. Um, these organisations all provide critical exhibition platforms and creative development opportunities for artists. And in the context of our new policy, we plan to work with the organisations we fund to bring a renewed focus to film artists and to provide new opportunities for the exhibition of their work. <coughs> um, so, you see us doing more in that area with the organisations we fund over the coming years. In terms of public engagement, um, we provide and support the development of audiences for cultural cinema on a national basis, again, through our funding of a range of film programming organisations. Again, the Irish Film Institute, um, Access Cinema and key film festivals throughout the country. And it's through these that the public is given access to a diverse range of cinema that wouldn't otherwise be available and is presented with opportunities to critically engage with film culture. Again, in the context of new policy, we'd be looking to engage more hard-to-reach audiences, and this is going back to the discussion earlier, um, through the organisations we fund. Uh, I can give you an example of that. Um, young people and children, they don't have the same access to film as would have been the case um, in the past, it's a much narrower, there's a much narrower focus in what is available, even there's a greater, I suppose, level of film out there. Um, so we're working with the IFI and providing designated funding to the IFI to develop its film club initiative. And we're, we've worked with the IFI on their accessibility programme um, and in coming up with best practice guidelines which would be available to, the, to um, venues. Um, on the Access Cinema Circuit, for example, who are showing film um, to increase accessibility for audiences. And we're also keen to provide greater um, and deeper opportunities for critical discourse on film and fil film culture and critical writing on film and film culture. We see there's a particular deficit in that area and want to see that filled um, over the next five. So, um, I think with our new film policy, we're also trying to better align the artist element with the public engagement element. And in this regard, we've begun to tie in exhibition support for artists with our awards. So we started this in 
2017 with real art. Um, so for example, Ken Waters film Making the Great, which is showing cinemas now, and Photo City, they were able to apply for additional exhibition support to get those real art films into cinemas. Um, we've also introduced this to our project award, so recipients of our project award, starting with the last round, which was just announced last week, will, they will, on completion of their films and on the delivery of an exhibition strategy, will be able to apply for funding to support the exhibition of those works. And in the case of our new Authored Works initiative, um, the detail of which we'll be announcing, um, I hope, before the end of May, we plan to work with the IFI as an exhibition partner and to build a platform not just for the exhibition, but for critical discussion around it with the premiere of the work. And yes, um, we've also, we're also bringing in an accessibility requirement um, for the work we support so that it will be as accessible as possible to as wide an audience as possible. I should say, one of the key actions um, in our policy was to conduct a review uh, and a needs analysis on supports for artists. So we have done that. Maretta Dillon, who I know is here, our film advisor at the back, <coughs> Maretta Dillon conducted that for us. And um, we, it basically, I think, reaffirmed what we had put in the policy, but uh, I think to a large degree, and it, um, but it, it will see us really focus our support and develop, uh, supporting artists to develop their practice, exhibit their work, and greater provision of opportunities for the exhibition of work and critical discourse. That has all come, been reaffirmed through that review and needs analysis. Um, and I know a number of people who are in the room today contributed to that and are very grateful for, um, for your <coughs> participation in, in that review. Um, just at the end, I suppose to say, these are all small set steps, we're aware of that, but I think they are significant. Um, throughout the last 10 years, over the course of the economic downturn, downturn, our focus was on really keeping a core strategic infrastructure in place. So with recent increases in our budget from government, I think we're now in a position to develop new initiative and respond to needs within the sector. And I'm hopeful that these initiatives will grow and provide opportunity for artists and affect change over time. That's the hope. OK, thank you. Yeah, I think it's really uh, helpful, and certainly later when we come to sort of discussion part, to think about you know, policy level at, at the sure. funding stage, about uh, you know, the Arts Council thinking behind um, exhibition and critical writing and all of those elements yeah, as well. Yeah, just more of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Joe, I thought we would then move to you. Just, um, I think there's a, a great deal would be good to hear from you on, but especially coming from a painting background and, and sort of moving into film, and, and you were talking earlier then about having done that and then sort of an experience of kind of going back into the visual arts and just, <coughs> yeah, it'd kind of be great to hear from you in, in respect to those. I think when I first read the motion that you put, I thought it had absolutely nothing to do with me. And, um, but as I thought about it over um, a short period, 
I began to realize that maybe it does have a lot to do with what I work at. Um, and it made me think back to where I started on what for me was um, artists moving absolutely nowhere image, <laughs> that, um, which started quite a number of years ago with a on a particular project. Um, and I was trying to think of where that started. And it started on a dark night where a lot of things start. Um, with meeting a man who I had worked with on previous films. Um, I inquired about his brother. He told me he was back in prison. He'd been out on parole for a wedding which he thought he should be the, uh, the bridegroom, uh, but wasn't. And um, at the end of the night he was broke and had lost his return ticket, so he stole a car to get back to prison to meet his parole, which he did. Um, so I was thinking over this story and, you know, making something of it. And shortly after that, I, was, uh, um, I needed a job because I had been working in Limerick Art School and I needed another job. And I met somebody who said, will you come and work in Portlaoise High Security Prison? And I said, yes, without hesitation, which led to a number of years, um, very intense years, working in that environment part-time. And um, when I was there for a period, I worked at, on two levels, two landings. Um, one was what it would be, is called the criminal landing, which was the highest security prisoners in the country. And on the landing above it was the political prisoners. And I began to realize a distinct difference between them. Uh, that on the criminal landing, experience of suicide was very prevalent in virtually every single prisoner on the landing. Whereas when you were on the political landing, it was pretty much similar to society outside of the prison. So I was thinking about my own short story in this context in the prison. Um, I was doing work with um, both actors, but also with painted imagery, sort of mix, mixing action and abstraction, and then encountered this um, intense contact with um, considerations of suicide. And what the prisoners themselves, because my job was to, try, was to help them express their own stories on video and film. And um, the one thing they wanted to get into the work was an authentic, authentic representation of suicide because they felt that they never saw that. So we did that. And that then influenced me to incorporate that in my own work, to, in a, but with a very different aesthetic. Uh, they would, I think you would say, did it in a documentary, realist style. I was doing it in a, an abstract story, um, experimental way. When I came near the end of, not just working in the prison, but of finishing my own film, I realised I'd made a film that I really couldn't show to an audience, because it didn't fit any category that I was aware of. And I was standing in the set one day, and I realised, maybe I should, or I thought, maybe I should make an installation. 
So I did, made an installation, I called it a film sculpture, got it exhibited in the Galway Arts Festival for two weeks, um, had very diverse responses, but I knew that the film was evoking a response with an adequate number of people so that the, it should have a further life. But it didn't. It came to a complete cul-de-sac. Um, I was, was very naive, I'm sure. I just, you know, I contributed quite a lot to sort of running very hard and bouncing off a wall. So I disassembled the whole thing with the help of all the people who had worked on it. It was a big, you know, installation, nearly six metres high, five square, um, which looked a bit like a prison and you went into it and you sat with eight or ten other people and you watched the film. But you watched it in the, in the, in the atmosphere which we had built a prison cell inside the installation. So at the end of the exhibition, took it all apart, put it in, transported it home, put it in my garage where it's been for the last six years. But I also, from time to time, go back and realise that perhaps what I had started was a prototype for something else, um, which had to be made for inside. And there was really nowhere that it fitted in. Like it was in a gallery, but that wasn't really what suited it. It couldn't go outside because of weather. It was like an orphan, it didn't, you know. And I started doing design because in the process of doing the film sculpture, you, you, you have to think about so many considerations. It's a big structure, it has to be safe. It has to, the ventilation has to work, the electricity, the lighting. There's many, many dimensions to making a film installation which you actually go into and come out of. So all of that had been done, I'm going to talk to, I think, I'll finish yeah, off I'm quickly. Sorry to cut you off. I'll wrap it up very quickly yeah. because there's a point to it. I, now, I then did a drawing, which I think would be a new, but a new version of, of, of that installation, but made for exterior, for showing outside cinemas, uh, town squares, shopping centres, all that kind of thing. Because I think we now have the technology to do something like this in different materials that would allow the showing of very diverse films, particularly short films, but very diverse, would allow other people to do work, you know, musicians, poets. Um, we, have the we have the sort of digital technology, we have the materials of something that could be constructed, left for weeks, then deconstructed and taken somewhere else. That's yeah. what I wanted to say. That's great. Thank you. I think that's really useful, um, actually, as a way into talking to Anya, both about technology, but also about works that don't easily fit into one category or the other, and how the archivist is often obliged to make that call, hopefully, you know, for a possible conversation with the art artist, but sometimes we just have to place an, uh, an artwork or a film work in, into a particular category. So I know in your work, um, when you were here at the IFI uh, archive, you were working with the Arts Council collections um, as well as others, and, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that alongside your experiences as an artist as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for having me. <laughs> and uh, maybe because I'm always behind the scenes, I'll be reading. <laughs> um, so 
as you said, like an artist and an archivist, and my practice as an artist has influenced my knowledge as an archivist, and mm. my being an archivist has influenced my practice as an artist. So my artistic practice is kind of situated in the field of time-based art, just to throw another term in, and um, meaning that the essential element of my work is the passage and the manipulation of time through the expressive use of moving image technology and the human body. So that is in form of video installations or film, or my latest work is an expanded cinema performance. And well, yeah, I also come from art college NCAD, and I think just shortly after you. <laughs> and uh, since graduating from NCAD about eight years ago, I've developed my practice by working individually and collabor collaboratively. And through my studies, I also have developed an interest in art history, film theory, aesthetics, and I suppose life for detail. And with that knowledge and some film handling experience and records management experience, I joined the team of the Irish Film Archive, um, I think for about the past eight years, seven and a half years, in archiving and preserving um, Irish film. And maybe to talk a little bit about archiving moving image, but also archiving um, artists and experimental moving image, and touch a little bit on uh, conservation and technology um, for a few minutes. And so I was working firstly in the archive, the small gauge amateur film collections um, for about a year, which was really interesting, before I was starting to work um, with the collections of the Irish Film Board, um, the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, and the Arts Council of Ireland. And um, by doing so, I was in a kind of unique position to work with moving image that was destined for different environments, so the cinema, television, and a combination of cinema and gallery. So in order to preserve these moving image works, I had to study the technologies inherent to both the creation and the exhibition environments. And while I was at that, I also witnessed the shift to digital film, which is considered a major change for this inherently transitional medium. So, um, I mean, maybe to continue, like analog and digital or like uh, film and television, the archiving of artists and experimental moving image requires different strategies for description and for preservation. And in terms of description, for example, I found aboutness isn't easily defined or, um, you know, a synopsis isn't easily written, nor is a short list easily um, compiled or a genre defined. So those were kind of challenges. And even at the time, I remember coming across a vocabulary for classifying experimental moving image, which I think is different in terms of its genre. It seemed at times that the vocabulary was more suitable for works that were 20 years old or older. Mm. And also that um, uh, is a challenge for contemporary moving image and experimental works. Um, crucial to archiving artists and experimental moving images also to recognize that these works can often exist in both uh, a cinema and a gallery environment. So, for example, the work um, Aurelien Formont's work Nine Intervals. I don't know if you remember that, it's a few years back. But it was kind of challenging work because in the cinema itself it existed like in each interval was shown between um, advertisement breaks and trailers. And then by chance actually I came across this work in Mottis Tank Station where it was um, shown on a not a single um, channel projection, two projections 
and screens kind of adjourned to one another, so the images kind of got into a kind of dialogue and they started talking to one another. And I remember that was kind of a distinct moment for me to, to look at the work in terms of how many manifestations of this work is are there actually in existence, because if I was to describe this work, I needed to know the many manifestations that are there because they change quite dramatically. Sometimes I wouldn't even call it a manifestation, I would really consider it a new work or mm -hmm. a different work. So that was kind of um, something um, eye-opening. Um, so for archiving, it is important to document every possible manifestation of this work. And as mentioned earlier, it is also important to understand the technical creation and exhibition environment. And maybe to talk a little bit about one of my works, um, it's called um, Motion in Constant to the Other. And I used MiniDB a few years back to, to capture images. And I was particularly exploiting a, the kind of digital noise that is inherent to the medium. And later I found that a particular video compression techniques could make that digital noise louder or quieter. And uh, I was kind of experimenting with that. And then last year, when I exhibited that work in Mermaid and Bray, I noticed that a high-definition projector produced a kind of artifacting when upscaling the resolution, which was sort of detrimental to that detail or the aesthetics that I had created with that digital noise. So I can kind of concluded a dependency on standard definition projection technology. And maybe then to elaborate a little bit more on conservation of, of this medium, um, According to the Tate Modern, which I think does great work in terms of time-based media um, or artistic works that work with moving image, the artists working with time-based media make a very specific decision in their choice of media and the way in which their work is presented. So specific uh, display equipment m might be important because of a particular quality or sound or image it creates or because the artist has made the conceptual links between particular item of the equipment and the meaning of the work. But it's also um, that specific technology places a work at a particular point in history and may convey ideas about the spirit in which the work was made. So it is important for archiving to preserve that knowledge about the work. And I think it is really important to highlight that archivists must collaborate with um, or go into a dialogue with artists while they're still alive and um, curators conservators, um, technicians, and, well, in these days, information technology specialists and computer scientists also, in order to capture that knowledge. So maybe um, to finalize with a thought from um, the philosopher um, Maurice Blanchard, um, who says, well, he states that it is largely by technology that society hangs together. And I feel that it is crucial that artists and experimental moving image is distinctively described or collected so that we can kind of develop that expertise to preserve and to describe it and we create these works in the future. So I think there's a continuum of developing and preserving that knowledge mm -hmm. so that these responses to new technology and especially as we have heard earlier in the room, like, you know, working with the, the cinema and the pocket and and um, it can have an impact on well I suppose key concepts in art and film theory and also um, have a voice in philosophies of technology and most importantly have like a place in history and heritage to inform the future so yeah thanks Anya I think that's really um, helpful for us to think about why <laughs>
I think it's really helpful to think about at those points um, when those labels, artist and experimental moving image, are useful and are essential, actually. Um, and I guess, um, sort of move to Christine, just um, to talk about uh, your work as one half of Desperate Optimists, and um, you work predominantly in the UK, and I guess I was kind of curious to hear from you a little bit about, um, you know, are there infrastructural supports or organisations there that uh, encourage kind of a more fluid relationship between cinema and the visual arts, or, um, you know, how does how does kind of working there compare to, to the environment here in terms of that relationship? Um, yeah, I, I guess there's <laughs> a, a, big a couple question. of big questions yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, I thought I'd start by just talking about the site of cinema, thinking yeah. about the um, theme for this um, panel, mm. and I guess our journey towards cinema um, started um, from a love of cinema. Of course, I think most people would be would feel the same, and also a real love for the size of cinema. So going to the cinema to watch a single screen film on a big screen, and to do that with other people. So the social aspect of going to the cinema, it's something that we've always loved. We've came through us came to it in our practice and um, the slow way, and not in a direct way, because we didn't go to film school. We began um, making live performance work. Um, and then our live performance work incorporated more and more um, moving image content. So maybe we were um, in a dodgy territory by calling it live. By the time we finished making performance work, there was more moving image content than actually live performance in the work. So we knew we wanted to um, move and weren't sure how to do that. We began that process by accessing spaces that are accessible. Um, so back in 2000-2001, when the internet and online work began to really emerge with a kind of a force, we began to make an, an episodic work for um, the, an online space and then moved into the gallery space through um, video production, which I guess began that whole process of opening up the means of production for people. Although, having said that, back in the early noughties when we were involved in video production, it was still pretty prohibitive because Firewire didn't exist. The um, non-linear editing space was expensive, so it was all about, I don't know if people can remember Media 100, massive big raid towers, everything being slow and really, really expensive and not accessible. Mm. And that happening at the very same time that um, 35mm was still absolutely um, required for cinema. Um, project <coughs> exhibition it was also required for um, festival exhibition so it was still it just seemed unattainable that there was no way to us um, and but then you always have to be open to things when they come your way and um, I think it was Tony Tracy you mentioned earlier the Kenyon and Mitchell model we found a way to making our first short film and um, by thinking about that model, thinking about Kenyon and Mitchell and the way they worked, so they would stand outside the factory, film people coming out of the factory, and then distribute leaflets. If you want to come and see yourself on the screen, you know, it's going to cost you one penny or whatever it was. So the, the people in the film were the audience for the film. And we used that as a, a model in a series of works that we made called um, Civic Life. And so we worked in a participatory way with local communities, with funding coming from um, 
you know, local arts organisations and cultural funds. And the idea was that it was, you know, this kind of loop. People would volunteer to participate in the film, would help us to make the film, um, and that the film would um, take place and be shot in a civic space as a performance, uh, or a very performative act. And then the loop would be completed by having a, a red carpet event, hopefully with the mayor present, um, in their local multiplex cinema. So the people could see themselves and their, the place where they lived and worked on the big screen and to, to find a parity. So the first film we made was, we shot in 2003, so it was really important to us that by the time we got into the cinema, what you saw on the screen had a parity in terms of its production values and its sense of engagement with cinema and the language of cinema um, as what you might go and see in the room next door if you're going to see, you know, some Hollywood movie. Mm. So that was the idea. So uh, I think in practice there was a real tension between these kind of production values and the tropes of cinema making and then a real kind of raw documentary style feel because, you know, it was all made in a very, um, it was all made quickly in one day. We used the long single take. It was a real act of endeavour. Mm. Um, by a group of people coming together to try and make something happen. And so you can feel those kind of qualities and tensions in the work. Um, and, but that was um, us working as artists and interested in the cinema space as a popular space, but also one that isn't very democratic. So how do you get into a cinema space? And I guess we got into it because of the participatory community nature of the work and somehow it just appealed. We were able to put forward an argument um, for multiplex cinemas, which was an important part of the work that we get into a multiplex rather than an art house cinema. Um, anyway, this process led us then to making our first feature film. And again, this was all made outside of the normal film industry, film funding, um, you know, routes. Mm. So all the, the Helen was financed by cultural organisations and with some money from the Arts Council in the UK. Um, and so it was kind of made off the radar. It's a community arts project, but it, it led to a feature film. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to put that out there so that I, I can come back to the question, is there a difference in the relationship between film and vision arts in the UK than there is in Ireland? And in terms of the environment, that intersection between film and visual art, mm. is there a difference? And I would say, yes, there is. Mm. Um, I'd um, like to come back to what Fanula was talking about, the idea of um, film culture. That really doesn't exist in the UK in the same way. One of the problems is the way the Arts Council in England perceives its role and understands artists' relationship to film. And the, the thing that they have the biggest problem with is the size of cinema. So they don't like cinema spaces. If you, as a visual artist, have the audacity to say that you want to make work, that single screen is going to be shown in a cinema, well, then they say, this isn't the fund for you. You've got to go to the, you know, the film fund. You've got to go to the BFI, for example. But, of course, the BFI don't want to engage with... Um, unruly visual artists who've got you know, their own mad ideas about what should appear on the big screen and how their funds should be distributed. Yeah. So it's, there's, there's almost just a, 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 a big oh, chasm. Yeah. Right, okay. A big chasm. And so I think that visual artists um, and people who approach 
filmmaking in a way other than a film school or a film industry way are um, strategic, they're cunning, they're wily, they can find a way around it, but it's really, really tough and challenging. And I'd say the environment is tough, challenging, possibly even hostile. And often it depends on who's, who's there, who's deciding the policy, who's, who's listening or paying attention. So I think a lot of visual artists are interested in the sight of cinema and who says that they shouldn't be in the cinema space. Yeah. But then you've got to come back again and say, well, in what terms do you want to be in the cinema space? Mm -hmm. Because even in the years that we've been making work and showing this here and in um, the UK and elsewhere, I think the landscape has completely changed and it's really, really tough. So on the one hand, things have opened up in terms of making works more um, democratic because of digital technology, um, but there's too many films being made and there's too many people who want to make films and they're coming from different art forms. Yeah. So like visual artists want to make films, but when they want to make films, so visual artists have always been really fascinated by film, the language of film, and it feeds into the work the visual artists make. I mean, that's a fact. But when visual artists want to make the move into filmmaking, I think that's where things are problematic because they've got to fall into line. Mm -hmm. And it's a completely different language, it's a different world, it's a different landscape. And we are quite schizophrenic with regard to that whole thing because we make films, or we try to make films, in that film industry space, and we also make work in the film cultural landscape yeah. that Fanula was talking about. And to me, that's the really interesting landscape, and I wish there was more uh, crossover, osmosis between the two, because I think that film as an art form has a lot to learn, or, you know, it, it benefits greatly from what you know, visual artists, for example, can feed in and bring to us, but they're not always allowed to bring in um, the way they want to. Yeah. You've got to be, you know, in good shape. Yeah, I think that's really... <laughs> I think all of that is kind of a perfect way to sort of get into the, to the conversation because, um, and I know we're, we're pressed for time, but it does strike me as interesting that, for, for instance, when Joe started making film in, in the 60s and 70s, um, to my mind, I mean, I wasn't there, but maybe Joe can correct me. It seems like there was less of a, a self-consciousness about these two different disciplines. And now we're at this point where we sort of need these terms for funding, for archiving purposes. But at what point do they start to work against us, work against the artists who want to use the cinema space, but also maybe work against audiences who then go into um, encounters with this kind of work with a certain set of... Uh, preconceptions and I, I sort of uh, I wonder then for the artists who make moving image work bring them so Jesse maybe for you when you bring you know has there been an instance where you've brought a work that you sort of thought of for the gallery space into the cinema what has that experience been like and and what kind of challenges have there been is that something you're even interested in doing so much or is it much more about a fluid sort of dialogue between the two yeah, I, I kind of feel like every project is different and it requires a different space and yeah. it requires a different thinking about space. Mm -hmm. um, I have shown some of my films on single channel cine cinema screenings. Um, I suppose for me, in terms of like artists who I would look to that I admire, I, I do, I'm really interested in filmmakers um, who are coming from a visual arts background? Even you know, it, when you go to the cinema and see a Steve McQueen film, you can tell yeah. 
that there's a different understanding of the temporal, of the body. You know, I think that there's a lot of value that artists are bringing to the cinematic space mm -hmm. that imbues it with a kind of physical, material embodiment that other forms of narrative filmmaking just don't see. And mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, these silos or categories um, do lock off possibilities of like new ways of thinking about cinema. So I'm, you know, I'm not, I, I think that the best way to navigate a lot of these classifications is to just keep going ahead and, and like avoid them, don't, don't look at them. Because like at a, as an audience member, I don't go, oh my God, I went to the cinema and that was great. And I went, then I went to an installation and that was like, okay. Like I go to, I go to boat, I go to mm -hmm. everything. I don't, like I'd see, you know, a film in the cinema and then I'd go see a, a video art installation in an art gallery like the next day and I'd just, I'd be looking at them in terms of like the quality of experience. I'm not, mm -hmm. as an audience member, I'm not seeing like all of these walls and boundaries, I'm seeing like what is the thing that pulls me to the space of art, like what do I care about? But then from mm. the production side, I mean, um, I'm thinking of the first wave and, and sort of Tony did talk about, I, I thought that was interesting in relation to Down the Corner about, um, you know, us not needing to reinvent the wheel in order to make great Irish cinema. And I'm kind of thinking about how you know, there was this relationship between filmmakers and visual artists when you started making making film, and I wonder, did that really feed into, you know, the concepts and the ideas that you were thinking of when you were making work? At like that point, I think at, at that point in the, in the, you know, in the 60s, yeah. that it, there was a sort of realisation that, uh, you know, prosperity has the country is quite prosperous. There's a chance of making films. Mm -hmm. We make films without an awful lot of um, wider consider considerations of whether you know whether they're art or commerce or those sort of that didn't really enter into it. Yeah. I think it was just trying to get work made and then trying to build some momentum. And I, I think really what happened um, is that initially this was welcomed. But then there became a point, which I think was alluded to earlier um, by Tony, I think, that it was sort of, hold on a minute, uh, these films are going outside the country, they're not exactly flattering. Um, we're now moving uh, you know, into a different type of ideology, different type of economy. At the start, we were sort of a social democratic uh, you know, capitalism with quite a strands of social thinking. Mm -hmm. But gradually, over a period of decades, we've, we've moved to a much harder form of capitalism. And the, those, the, the films that were originally being made became less and less welcome because they were seen as works that didn't really aspire to commercial success in the way that was then required. Uh, so the more we moved towards um, filmmaking, profit promotion filmmaking, um, the, the less uh, the, the consideration of making art was tolerated. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of uh, artist moving image is relatively new yeah. because it wasn't needed. It, it only became needed when the art world felt that it needed a sort of anti-contaminant to deal with, you know, 
cinema. You know, I mean, there was a time when you could go to cinemas here, and now you can now in art houses. But if you notice, the 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 the, the, the choice is narrowed. Yeah. The option for artists yeah. to get the work on screen has become increasingly difficult. Yeah. Um, that's why I'm giving thought and trying to work. See, is it possible that we could make another entity that that would you know allow people to work, make art, and make cinema, and that the the two could survive, which, which is not actually happening now, but I actually think we're at a point where if we pull the different strands together, that is feasible. Not easy, not cheap. Mm -hmm. Haven't got a name for it that really works, um, but it's out there. It, it requires somebody to say, you know, pull these different strands together, and then we can have venues that can work for what we're talking about. Yeah. That would be my feeling. Okay. And I'm just I'm thinking then in relation to audience, and I'm curious to know when you're making work as well, are you are you thinking about a cinema setting for <coughs> your works or, or do you sort of leave that until, you know, at a, for a later point? Is it does it inform your practice in terms of how you go about making the work, the fact that you see it for the cinema or maybe you don't? Yeah, no, well, we, we certainly would, yeah. and it does inform everything that we think about yeah. and the way we approach work, yes. So the space of that, the, the, the size of the cinema space, mm -hmm. the size of cinema, is um, central to our thinking. Um, and the, the language of, the languages of cinema, how it's made, um, how it's, you know, consumed the history of cinema, it's all really important to our approach to our work. Um, for good or bad. I mean, I think this, the cinema space is really problematic at the moment. So when we made our first feature film, um, Helen, by accident, really by accident, and when it was um, actually taken up for distribution, it was a shock. It wasn't our intention. It wasn't what we expected um, the journey of the film to go on. And so then it, it was... It went out on release in the UK and actually in Ireland as well. Very, very limited release, but it was taken up by a distributor. And um, you know, again, that was really quite shocking to have a review. I mean, I didn't, don't know what we were expecting, but to have a review of your film in The Sun um, or in <laughs> Nooks magazine, that doesn't exist anymore. It was really shocking. And then to know that you were part of the same release window as um, X-Men Origins, Wolverine, and uh, a Michael Caine film, Is Anybody There? And then to know that we got the lead review by um, uh, Philip French and Jonathan Romney. And actually we had Davis um, Heyman, is that his name, by Hay yeah. of Heyday Films, actually phone us to say, who are you? <laughs> Where did you come from? Because we, this is what he said was, we've made a film, and John Crowley actually directed it as it happens, and we were expecting the lead review, so who are you? <laughs> uh, and the whole thing was quite a, you know, it was a, a really, it was a very interesting experience, because it was our first experience of, what is this size of cinema and how does it work? But when we made Helen, and it was released in 2009, there were eight films released on the Friday when Helen was released. Now we're working on new feature film, narrative feature film, and I imagine if we get to release it, and it's really important that we do, it's such an important part of the whole process, um, there'll probably be about 19 films, 
well, who can see 19 films? Who can review 19 films? Mm -hmm. Who can accommodate 19 <coughs> films in their exhibition space? Yeah. It's, it is completely mad. And although there's 19 films, who says there's diversity yeah. within yeah. those films? It's deeply problematic and it's tougher than it, than it was. And so then I think, well, how does this site of cinema survive? Because we've got a voracious appetite for content, you know, through TV production, etc. And um, and how does the cinema cling on? And is it just going to be about Marvel, comic book, you know, blockbusters, or is there a space for more interesting stuff? Yeah, know? I mean, I think it's. I'm really happy you mentioned that because looking at the the review earlier this morning, I mean, obviously, I'm sure everyone was struck by what is still such a massive imbalance in terms of um, speaking parts in, in films, but it, it goes beyond that. And I wonder if if we can use these categories of artist moving image and experimental film here to say to, to question whether they're whether these arenas do that better. Do they do it better? If they do, why? And I wonder if you know, even you know from the arts council's perspective, do you notice that there is, you know, a balance? Is that even something that um, you know is part of the conversation there about the applications even that come in? Like does there seem to be a kind of, you know, in terms of men and women, let's start there, like, does it seem more even? Um, it's not, it's not even. Yeah. Um, it is something we're looking at right across. It's less even in film than it would be in other art forms. Okay. It's probably at about 40, 60. Um, and we are working on a um, equality and <coughs> diversity policy and have Alwyn um, Raw in with us developing that at the moment. So there'll be outcomes to that, but no, it, that's, so that's yeah. where it's at. It doesn't do what you thought it might do. Yeah. It isn't what you might but expect. I mean, I mean, 40, 60, does that not seem, I mean, it's not it's what a, we want, it's, but it's no, somewhat it's, it, yeah. of, a, of a difference to it's what we're seeing. I'm not wondering yeah. if you have any thoughts on that's that. That's in the film end. In oh, the film end, And yeah. in other art forms, it would be, you know, dance, for example, would be much higher. Yeah. The other way, so, yeah. Yeah. But and across the board, then it would even out. Yeah. At fifty-fifty, pretty much. And from your experience, Jesse, do you think that that's a, a fair statement? Well, I don't know the statistics, but uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, like, for me, um, like working as an artist and within art for the last ten years, you know, like it was never considered strange that I would want to make like a feminist sci-fi film or anything within an artistic context. But if I had it went to um, the film board or something with that it might have seemed strange mm -hmm. I actually put my first application into the film board only because of POV yeah. so you know like when people have something to say about you know the, 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 the situation and is there other precedents and you know like coming from like a Sue Otterin identity, which I love that term because it makes me feel like I live in the back cave and <laughs> I have superpowers, whatever. But you know, like I feel like there's going to be a backlash for against the POV scheme in terms of like the aesthetic silencing of male filmmakers. And I think, you know, we need to have a bit of aesthetic silencing actually. And I'm going to say that I know that sounds really controversial. I don't think that we're fighting for parity. As women filmmakers, we're fighting for a type of representational justice that has been denied to us. And some of that 
representational justice is going to require a little bit of aesthetic silence for just a little while, you know, and we're going to have to be honest about that and not just say, oh, let's give women a chance because, you know, they haven't had a chance, you know, like we're going to have to actually be more aggressive in how we pursue gender equality in relation to all of the arts and all of the public sphere. Like it's not just going to happen and, you know, I think that's the, the, the POV scheme is a great example, but we need to see more examples where we see a representational justice movement in terms of like our tapestry of culture, which was a great phrase from earlier. We're going to have to see what I would call a representational justice movement, which is coming out of like massive social movements that are happening. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just conscious of the time. I wonder, do we have, I, I, I know I said I would open for questions earlier and I didn't, so I lied, but I'm just wondering, um, could we have a couple of minutes? Yeah, a question from Tony. I just want to ask one question. Thanks for that, it was really fascinating. Um, and uh, like Jesse, I, I remember that Bill Viola exhibition with uh, searing clarity, uh, jumping into that swimming pool. Um, I suppose, I was very interested in what Christine said about the difference between the UK and Ireland. Really, absolutely fascinating about ricocheting between funding agencies. And uh, it struck me, although you can use the term for that there's a kind of creative ambiguity around your funding. Or is there? You know, uh, do you feel pressure, um, particularly as we move towards this kind of creative industries agenda? Um, and that has been, you know, put on the table, I think, at least since sort of 2009 or so. Do you feel pressure to conform to one conception of cinema no. or another? No. Or do you feel pressure coming uh, from anywhere to do that? No. <laughs> the, only, you know, the only pressure is the compassionate context of the applications that you receive. That's, that's the only pressure. There's absolutely no um, larger or external pressure. We respond to the applications we receive. Um, and if you were to do more of one thing, what would that be? <coughs> more of one thing. Um, well, I think now with the author report, the artist-led author works. It's something I've wanted to do for some time. We haven't, we haven't been able to. We haven't had um, the budget, but it's, um, we're now in a position to because I think there is that space. You know, it is about um, providing a space so that artists can make that type of work. It won't be genre specific, it'll be wide open to um, to what people what artists want to do and we respond. We won't be able to do as many as we'd like, you know, but we start off and um, we do two real arts a year. We'll probably be doing one of these and take it from there. Sorry, just one other question, yeah. Yeah, just really interesting to hear artists' perspective in film. And just as I was listening there, I was thinking, you know, sometimes our visual artists, the subaltern minority, or the minority <laughs> in film, because sometimes fall <coughs> between two stools. And, and Jesse, you're talking about the oscillating doubt, you know, of film. I actually don't think you should have any doubt, and I'm delighted to hear that you're engaging with the POV scheme. I know it's encouraging to hear that the film board are changing their name to, you know, Screen mm -hmm. Ireland. So there's an opening there, a slight door of opening there, and then it's great to hear that the Arts Council are, are all more open than the BFI about, you know, and not as sort of rigid in, in cinema spaces, you know. Um, so I just it's it's positive to hear that the two are kind of merging more in the future. I just really hope that 
both of you can kind of bounce into, into both spaces in the future. Could yes, I, could I just comment? I think Ireland, uh, changing the, the name from the film board to Screen Ireland is a travesty which is um, abolishing five decades of serious work and it is the transition to what I was just saying um, where film, <coughs> the artistic content of film will be further diminished. Um, the possibility of women working satisfactorily in film will be further diminished. Uh, the return on storytelling for Ireland as a country will be diminished. It is something that there's been no resistance to. And it is, it is something that if we let go, will have very serious consequences um, in starting from now. I'm not so talking about that. It's the final transition to making film as, as a commercial entity. I don't believe that a culture, any culture, but our own culture in particular at this moment, because that's what we're living in, that a culture can put its storytelling up for auction. And that's the process that we're engaged in. We've moved the full scale from what the first wave was trying to do, which was to try and tell stories about our society to help us to organise our society, to be aware of ourselves in time and place, to help civilise our society. We are now moving along a route over all those decades to the point where um, we think we're at a point of maturity where we can actually put ourselves up for auction. And that's what what's, um, Screen Ireland is, is about. It's not about digital diversity, it's about assimilating with the Hollywood mindset. And what happens when a society does that is that it, uh, not only does it sort of lose its art, sense of its artistic ability, creative ability, but it actually is, is putting itself in a situation where it would be mo much more prone to, to bankruptcy of various kinds, be it financial bankruptcy, or bankruptcy across a whole scale of, of what we need to be a coherent society. Yes, my, my understanding of the medium of screens or an over for time is that you know it's a broadening to welcome artists and different types of stories under the word screens. So obviously we have film, there's no denying the power and the cultural relevance and importance of film, but that we're opening up the opening up the doors to other types of television work, uh, games, uh, small films and artistic works even in galleries, that it's a more open, inclusive uh, word screen. That, that's, you know, but I, I completely agree with, with the film, uh, the, the importance of, of films as a, as a cultural, you know, uh, landmark in, in Ireland. If I can just, sorry <laughs> to interrupt, because I think we are tight for time, but what I would suggest is we are all in uh, kind of the out, uh, there's the lunch scheduled upstairs now, and hopefully we'll be able to um, continue the conversation. Unless, Joe, you feel like I'm, I'm completely cutting you off and you want to... Well, if I could just make yeah. in two sentences yeah. an answer. Yeah. I have proposed that the film board be divided into two strands. Uh, I'm not so much concerned that the, there could be alterations to the film board name, but there should be two strands. One is, one is a service industry, 
for, that is needed for employment, for people coming into the country, for connections with commercial cinema, which I'm not, you can't turn globalization round. I, I'm not ex asking for that. But that you have a strand which deals with that. And you have another strand, and both strands would be under separate directors. The other strand would be for film as art, mm. as film to tell the stories that we need in our society. That's what I want, instead of changing to Screen Ireland. I, I agree with that. I think that if, if, as an artist, if people were relying to make money off my films, like I'd never get to make film ever again. That is honestly the truth. Like if I was relying on, on somebody making money or there being some kind of financial end result to me making film, like forget about it. I think that's a really sort of potent area for discussion that we can hopefully pick up uh, further uh, as the day kind of moves on. And I'd just like to thank our panel, Fanula, Anya, and Yeah, sorry, there is a chance. No, you didn't want to say something. Sorry, do, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. I have to go back. We do not, the Arsenal Board does not support films to make money. Let me be very clear about that. That is, you know, and I have to step back from that. We support Irish creative talent telling their stories. It's not necessary to make money. Many of them don't. And that, apart from anything else, is an economic fact as well as a cultural fact. And I just wanted to say that because I think it's not fair to suggest that we're there solely to support a commercial activity. We're not. We're there to support Irish creative talent, Irish storytellers telling their stories on screen. And Bert is right. The screens are now much more diverse than they used to be. And that, I think, needs to be reflected in the remit that we have so that we can tell, <coughs> so we can support Irish creative talent telling their stories across film, television, online, and through all forms of media that are now available for telling those stories. Hence the name, the, the name change. And I think that's really important. Uh, but, uh, as I say, the important point is we're there to support the talent, not to make money. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Apologies again, as you can see, with your hand was raised. Um, but thank you again to the panel, and thanks again to Eleanor. And sorry for running over time. Yeah, um, anybody who's purchased a ticket for Spotlight today, you can get a lunch deal of soup and a sandwich out in the cafe bar. And we'll see you at 2 o'clock. Thank you. Thank you.